You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. On this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing at or coming soon to film scene and downtown Iowa City. Our lineup includes The Prince Vehicle and cult hit Purple Rain, which plays at film scene this Saturday night at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll be discussing the John Hughes classic, The Breakfast Club, which plays at the Englert in partnership with Film Scene this Saturday at 7 p.m. in celebration of its 30th anniversary. That's the making of a great Saturday 80s double feature. Finally, we'll be discussing French-Canadian filmmaker Xavier Dolan's Mommy, which has been playing at Film Scene this last week and will continue to show both this evening and tomorrow. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Patrick Brown, fellow film studies PhD student, member of the Bijou Film Board, and frequent banter friend. Welcome, Pat. I'm glad to be back. Thank you. And we have Caitlin Williams, PhD student in the Department of English here at UIowa and first-time banterer. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Hi, I'm also glad to be here. And I'm Catherine Steinbach, Bijou's programming director. So let's get started with our first film. Purple Rain is the 1984 semi-autobiographical Prince music film phenomenon. The soundtrack to the film sold 20 million copies worldwide and won an Academy Award for Best Original Score. Pat, I've seen you sing Prince many times at karaoke, so I'm excited to hear your take on this film. I I have, in fact. uh, And most of the time, it's it's songs from this album. Um, 1984's Purple Rain was the first of three feature films Prince would co-conceive, star in, and write a soundtrack for but it's justifiably the only one you remember. The other two are uh, Under the Cherry Moon is the third one, and Graffiti Bridge, I think, is the sequel to Purple Rain. Uh, The soundtrack to Purple Rain, featuring the nine Prince songs of 12 total songs played in the film, became one of the most iconic albums of the 1980s. In the film, a pop-funk-rock musical, Prince plays a young musician referred to only as The Kid. The kids band The Revolution is already big on the Minneapolis scene, but for a reason that is not totally evident from the relative quality of their songs and performances, he plays second fiddle to Morris Day and The Time. In real life, a Prince-produced band playing songs co-written by Prince. (laughs) The band's problem, it would seem, is the kid's ego. He doesn't listen to suggestions from bandmates or the managers of First Ave, a real club in Minneapolis where Prince got his start, and he has a tendency to pout. But his pouting is justified. Every time, and literally every time, the kid goes home in the film, he discovers his parents are in the midst of a fight with his father threatening to get violent. He throws himself in the way of his much larger father to protect his mother, but the situation threatens to turn tragic any day. Meanwhile, fleshing out the plot, is the arrival in Minneapolis of a young, hopeful singer named Apollonia. Apollonia catches the kid's eye in the opening scene, and they soon begin a romance whose chief attraction is that it's set to some brilliant Prince songs. (laughs) Soon, though, the kid's jealousy over Apollonia's friendship with his rival Morris complicates things. Will this all be resolved through song? One can only hope. To begin with, and this isn't quite a question, 
one thing that always strikes me about this movie is that it doesn't make any sense. And I don't necessarily mean this sort of general lack of clarity regarding characters' motivations. I mean the basic conflict. Uh, both the first Av manager and Morris Day seem to think the kid, you know, sucks. Uh, although the evidence we're presented with contradict that pretty profoundly. There's this scene that has always really confused me, where Prince gives this amazing performance of Computer Blue and Darling Nikki, and, and it's it's the best thing ever. <laughs> and and the people in the club act like Prince just made the biggest mistake of his life. <laughs> Did you guys also feel like this movie, there's like this conflict in this movie between the amazing, I, I, to me, they're just great like live performances or dubbed performances that Prince gives and the fact that everyone is just insisting for some reason that the kid isn't good enough yet? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I just watched this for the first time. Like, this is really the first time I've ever seen Purple Rain. And I was I was just so confused. Why is he bad? Why? Yeah. I mean, certainly I, I see the problem, like the essential problem of like, okay, the kid's ego is crazy. Um, but it seems to come from this genuine place where like he's like, I'm amazing. Yeah. And obviously I'm doing everything right. So why are people trying to write songs for me, how dare they, you know? It also doesn't sound in the film like he's ever not as good as Morris, though, which is, yeah. like, a real problem. Like, they never seem like anything other than equals to some extent. So right. to place, like, the antagonist kind of on the same playing field because Prince's talent is so wholly above and beyond, it's kind of logically inconsistent. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's this conflict that this movie wants to tell the story of an underdog, like, finally finally achieving like the next level, but Prince is always at that next level. <laughs> and, and yeah, Morris Day in the time, just not a believable rival for Prince and the revolution. It just, it, there's, it, I, I think it's part of the charm of this movie that it doesn't, it doesn't work. Like yeah. no, none of, none of, nothing in the story, not the romance, not the central conflict is really, is really what you're there for. It's, it's all just like Prince performing his princeness. Well, I yeah. guess that's why we call it like a camp classic, right? Yeah. Like we're not acknowledging that it's a great film in its setup or its plot, but rather that it's an over-the-top film with amazing performances. Yeah. Yeah, although I do, I mean, the time is pretty, they're pretty entertaining and, and you can sort of see how maybe the politics are that they're just like more established mm -hmm. and they're entrenched in the First Avenue culture, you know, and then... And and the name, the kid, is, like, really putting it in this kind of, like, experience level kind of hierarchy. Um, so I guess that that's what they're trying to do, but I yeah. don't think that that's actually how. <laughs> and, like, Darling Nikki goes along with your point, I think, in that it seems to be a decorum issue and not a talent issue. Yeah. Right? Like, the way right. that he's acting on stage is the problem and not the fact that he's, you know, he's crushing the song. But, but the way that he performs it is the issue. But at the same time, all of these parts of the film were the actual music videos for the the singles that mm -hmm. that he performs. So like even that darling Nikki performance that is just like scandalous and inappropriate on stage is actually the marketing tool <laughs> used to promote Prince as a as somebody with wide appeal and popularity. So there's this like contradiction. <laughs> I, I think what the film what the film's obviously trying to do is like a clever marketing strategy to like Prince is the artistic one that that like isn't necessarily as popular as Morris Day, and Morris Day is kind of uh, like 
appealing to the masses. Mm-hmm. Uh, though it's interesting that Prince actually wrote the Morris Day and the Time songs and the Apollonia Six songs, and it seems to have intentionally made them not as good as Prince's songs. <laughs> but just like, uh, well, definitely the the Apollonia Six stuff that was pretty silly. Um, yeah. But there's really only the one scene, right? That yeah. So it's hard to like make a sweeping statement about how bad they are, but it's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Poor Apollonia was also nominated for a Razzie. Yeah. As yeah. Worst actress. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> she was also apparently a, a last minute replacement. Prince had a different uh, sort of female disciple. Uh, Vanity and Vanity mm-hmm. quit. Vanity Six was the name was <laughs> yeah. the name of the group, and she she quit. Probably because man, Prince that's a better name. Yeah, <laughs> and then he asked Jennifer Beals. And oh she my was god, focusing on college, so she said no. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What could Kate, have been? Caitlin and I both read the Wikipedia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <It's> very, <laughs> yeah. that is absolutely true. <laughs> um, research. Yeah. College research. Thanks, Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, oh, what? What? You know, one thing that I I didn't prepare questions about but i was wondering what you guys thought of the little comic gags in this film like uh morris day and and jesse his sort of assistant rework the abbott and costello routine they go what's the password exactly oh because what is the password and it's uh and and there's also this scene where prince does ventriloquism oh yeah that that is just like completely (laughs) completely nonsensical because he's not it's it's clear that it's like dubbed in and it's just this Magic of cinema. Yeah, voice the, over. Magic of cinema. <laughs> the movie's also got a, a few great montages. Uh, it's it's just it's got got a lot of interesting gags. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, my second topic um, is that this movie's attitude uh, toward gender sums up yeah. the contradiction contradictions in Prince's image pretty well. On the one hand, you have a lot of androgynous fashion, uh, men in heavy makeup and dandy, dandyish clothing. Uh, and Prince's band, the the Revolution, and then subsequent bands after this movie, uh, always include women. His current band is Third Eye Girl or something, uh, which is all a, a woman backing band. Uh, cool uh, for Prince. Uh, so there's a sort of like post sexual revolution vibe here, sort of loosening of of gender performances to some extent. But on the other hand, Prince's reputation for controlling the lives and careers of his of uh, his female disciples or uh, like like Apollonia in the movie or Vanity in uh, in real life. Um, and the casual misogyny of this movie yeah. make the make the women feel like like fetishes, like the women in his band are sort of there to as sort of like fetish objects. Um, and the fact that his heterosexuality is always ultimately insisted upon. He's always like a virile heterosexual man. And he actually does this in in his music too if you if you listen to like his early albums around the time of purple rain he does like acknowledge that there's something gay in his image but then insists that he's not in a in a couple mm-hmm. lines um so so the fact that his heterosexual heterosexuality is always insisted upon visually and otherwise uh makes all the androgyny feel something like a co-opting of, of gay culture uh so i was wondering if you guys had thoughts on that, on these topics yeah, I mean, I think that it's a good point. I think that this, I don't know, that there's something about the way that the film plays out that I think is fascinating because Prince, uh, the kid as a character, um, has to face up 
to the terrible gender dynamics that he's inherited from his family. And he also has to give in to the fact that it's not, his music isn't all about his ego and, and he has to like face up to that. There's a more complicated dynamic on stage and, And and the performances are more complex, you know? Um, so it's in a way it's like the kid realizing gender performance stuff. You know, <laughs> well, he, the song that he performs actually is written by the women in the band. Yeah, right? so, yeah. yeah, that's a good hint. It is extremely jarring to watch the film now. I think probably more so than it would have been at the time because domestic violence is presented as a commonplace in a lot of ways. So even though he has to come to terms with it, when he does get violent with Apollonia, there's yeah. not a huge. It's uh, not a deal breaker. No, right. it's kind of like he sings a song, kind of, sort of about it, and she's totally sold mm-hmm. right but like they don't have to have a conversation where he's like i'm sorry i did that that's that's true though at the at the end of the movie spoiler alert can i yeah i mean it's they don't they don't like it's suggested that they'll get back together but they don't they don't get back together right he's i think they they do yeah well i think it's kind of understood that aren't they like cleaning they 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 do a smooch or something at the end yeah no you know, the kissing stuff in this movie, by the way. He's a terrible, outrageous. Yes. <laughs> anyway. It is an interesting contradiction. I mean, Prince and Gender is like, there's so much to be said because I think he's kind of at the forefront of the androgyny thing, right? Like him and, and it was, I mean, there was the huge uh, rivalry between him and Michael Jackson, which was very much about having like left of center, uh, appearances while still uh, insisting on a a very virile uh, yeah persona yeah. and both both artists really fed into that with their really public controversy which was I mean to the point where they would battle each other at concerts and uh, Prince you know at one point Michael Jackson called Prince on stage and and uh, Prince, I, I actually Prince did not know do this. it yeah I mean it was a very public rivalry and was very much about uh, male posturing. And uh, that kind of, uh, I'm a, you know, I'm going to show you up in public and embarrass you. Uh, but nevertheless, they certainly respected one another as artists. Yeah. Well, um, why don't we go ahead and finish up on that note? Uh, again, Purple Rain plays at Film Scene this Saturday night at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours and is free for all you Iowa students. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss The Breakfast Club. Tuesday, March 31st at the Mill, Carrie Wine and Mission Creek present Amen Dunes with special guests Delicate Steve and Bull Black Nova. For more information, visit www.missionfreak.com. Amen Dunes with special guests Delicate Steve and Bull Black Nova at the Mill, Tuesday, March 31st. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film. The Breakfast Club is an infinitely quotable 1985 high school angst epic. Caitlin, 
two things. One, which of the types were you in high school? And two, can you give us your thoughts on this classic dramedy? <laughs> I think I would have to say that I was probably a fusion of the athlete as a volleyball player. Nice. But also uh, maybe a little bit of the princess. I had a, a quite a penchant for stereotypical skirt and blouse combos. So <laughs> I'd have to go with that. Uh, but I do really enjoy this film and I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, the Breakfast Club, which came out in 1985, is probably John Hughes's best known or perhaps most beloved film and is an example of the classic people sit and talk in a room film. In this case, <laughs> uh, five teenagers defined as the brain, the princess, the basket case, the athlete and the criminal get to know each other by revealing secrets all during a Saturday afternoon de- detention. The Breakfast Club retains a solid place in the cultural lexicon, perhaps because of the self-seriousness that also makes it easy to mock, uh, and people often have, an authenticity that affirms the egocentric suffering of teenage experience. Though the characters' revelations may be predictable, I would argue that it may be the very predictability of these revelations that ground these characters as standbys and the limited pantheon of teenage characters who register as human and real. Hughes remains perhaps one of the only directors whose work has managed to create flesh-and-blood teenage characters worthy of our empathy, while eschewing the irony that has progressively become a cachet of cool. In a week where we're also discussing the hyper-realistic mommy, an insane alien from another planet, Prince's camp classic Purple Rain, which we just (laughs) finished up, The Breakfast Club's enduring brand of authenticity strikes me as an interesting conversation. So let's start off by talking about what has made this film stay so popular in spite of Hughes's self-referential 80s-centric aesthetic? Oh, boy. Um, I, I, have to, I have to confess that I'm not sure that I have a good idea of what has kept this film so popular. Uh, I saw this once in high school, and then I, I rewatched it, obviously, this weekend. And I don't feel it's aged very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I... I, there are parts that I laughed at, but I just couldn't. I couldn't find a way to relate to this movie, really. Um, but Maybe I guess because you're not a teenager, it's probably because I'm not a teenager. <laughs> I guess. I guess it's probably it. Though I still love Freaks and Geeks, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't. I don't know. Um, I mean, I think it's really iconic to like uh, people who were between the ages of you know, like 12 and 20 in 1985. And that's a lot of people. So I think it has a lot of cultural cachet because they control a lot of our culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I don't don't know. But you guys, we're all younger than that. You guys love this movie. So. Well, I think that's a good point, though. I mean, it's coming to the Ingler accompanied by things like a costume contest. So, I mean, the level of nostalgia inherent in that event itself uh, does... uh, ground your your yeah. opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think the very like the very defined personalities are so memorable. Um that's I think that's certainly part of the appeal, but also I just find with this movie consistently the last, you know, s- several times I've watched it. Like I don't want to hear the like the actual like really climactic uh cathartic crying, you know, at each other. I'm like over it. Uh, I, what I want to hear is them insulting the like principal. Um, and and that I, I find the like, 
did, do you know that does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Like <laughs> I find that to be like, yes, I'm into it. I love the like conflict between the principal who clearly hates his job uh, and and then the kids who are just like trying to find some sort of freedom even within this like strangely confined space and I and like set of identities. I think that um, what you were saying, Pat, also brings up something that's true of a lot of John Hughes's kind of canon, which is that they're looked back at kind of reverentially um, for what they were as these teen classics. But at the same time, you can point to any of a host of issues for each one. So like 16 Candles is like, has a big race issue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like the breakfast club uh, has some interesting gender stuff. Uh, people talk a lot about Ali Sheedy's uh, kind of the requirement that she has to transform into a more appropriate uh, feminine look to win the guy. Although uh, she kind of slinks out with the same look on her face. So I'm not sure yeah. how much she's actually <laughs> indicated to have changed. But it certainly does um, make some kind of point that people talk about now as being limiting. Well, and there's also the way that Molly Ringwald ultimately responds to Judd Nelson's really aggressive sexual harassment of, yeah. of her. <laughs> She's like into it eventually. Yeah. 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 I mean, certainly his his like heroism in this <laughs> in this is it's difficult you know looking at it now because he's so um he's so icky for mm-hmm. <laughs> a period of time but um but at a certain point they all sort of even out in their kind of like maybe sense of their appeal because they start to reveal things about themselves so even even his like icky performance is like tempered by his, you know, volatile home life, which yeah. I don't know. I mean, but is that an excuse for for that behavior? I don't know. I mean, in the 80s, all of these things. <laughs> I mean, and in the 80s, you can bring a gun to school and just yeah. get detention. It was a flare gun. <laughs> it was okay. a flare gun. <laughs> well, maybe that's like part of it, though, is that they are ultimately still really archetypal. Uh, so they function still as boxes that students uh, today still get characterized as. So I think high school students can still watch that movie and identify to some extent as I'm an outsider or I'm an athlete or, uh, you know, I'm a princess and no one understands me. And, uh, you know, I have this complicated inner life and this movie gets that. And I think there's an enduring appeal in that, um, at least did you guys notice that the outsider girl, um, what's her name in the film? I, I don't remember. But it's she, Allison, but yeah. A- Allison, mm-hmm. she uh, she is uh, holding a Prince album yeah, at she one is. point. Yeah, she is. I noticed that. It's a really exciting connection between two of our films this week. Yeah, and it, it explains so much of her her persona, right. you know? Prince is the popular music for the weird kids in 1985, I yeah. guess, is, mm-hmm. is the message. <laughs> well, Prince is certainly weird, but amazing. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> and the and the black eyeliner that's all accounted for with the prince. Yeah, I'm always interested in how much people bring John Hughes up, uh, kind of as an influence. So if anybody makes a movie about high school, uh, you can't get through a review without uh, kind of commenting on how this movie functions as in the legacy of John Hughes. Uh, so. And even to the extent that like Pitch Perfect in 2012 had this movie as a major plot point. 
So the whole yeah. like love interest, uh, the way that they establish their connection is through a mutual love of the breakfast club after he introduces her to it. Uh-oh. And um, she has to sing the anthem to, yeah. to win him. And- the, I also caught <laughs> references. The unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt has a reference. Uh, and Bob's burgers either this past week's or two weeks ago, had a, oh, like a, detention. a Saturday detention episode. Yeah, I and, saw the end of they, it. They yeah. parody the famous song from the opening and, and closing of the, of the Breakfast Club. So it's still it is still a super iconic movie. Um, I guess maybe I didn't I didn't do it enough justice. And I, and I think Catherine, you're right that the best the best moments to me were when they're insulting the the, the principal and and have that sort of back and forth with him. Um, yeah, and I think that some of the power is just like. So yeah, there's this opposition between adulthood and being a teenager, you know, and and you get to like enjoy the humor of that. But also I think John Hughes gets this, you know, prestige because he's allowing these teenagers to be full human beings in a way that I think that maybe they weren't before, or at least not in such an appealing way. Um, before, I mean, I feel maybe that's arguable, but, um, but yeah, maybe I, you know, I don't know the the landscape of teenage films, you know, in the seventies and eighties well enough, but you know, when I think teenagers in film in in that era, I think of like slasher movies, yeah, right? mm-hmm. like that's what I would generally think of, and they're, you know, teenagers are generally a played by thirty year olds, which only a couple of the teenagers in the Breakfast Club are yeah. thirty year olds. <laughs> Can see Judd Nelson's gray hair, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and be just very one dimensional. And yeah, I, like, I guess the, the good thing about the breakfast club is that it, it does try to, I, I think in, in like, like Caitlin said, like in a pretty archetypical, uh, way, you know, they still remain archetypes at the end of the movie, but they're, but it does try to sort of reveal that they, they all have similar issues going on. Or just say like teenagers. there's more to the stereotype, right? Like you yeah. can... Uh, see yourself as one of these, uh, trying to fulfill one of these images, but that's not all there is to it. And I think that that continues to be an incredibly important message for high school students. And I think that's still the focus of um, many high school narratives. So I think uh, 13 Reasons Why was the big YA novel over the past year, which is really all about just uh, high school reputations and how that defines you and limits you in some potentially devastating ways. Yeah. So is this, I have to ask, um, how does this measure up with the more recent teen movies? I mean, are, do you guys have a favorite teen movie like in, in your register, like that just comes up? I definitely do. I loved the movie adaptation of, uh, the perks of being a wallflower. I thought it Mm -hmm. was wonderful. Um, I actually like that movie more than I like The Breakfast Club, but um, but I think it's, it's successful in many of the same ways. Except for everybody starts out as outsiders, and everyone remains outsiders, and um, and but it's really dark uh, and also really funny, and I think functions so well as a. Um, kind of just a story about how people kind of find their tribe, you know, and, yeah. and that really means something. I, I don't know that I have a favorite teen movie. I love, I mentioned it earlier, but I love Freaks and Geeks, yeah. the TV show that's almost as short as a movie because it was canceled so mm-hmm. so quickly. Yeah, that's um, true. I Otherwise, 
I like uh, movies or TV shows where teenagers don't speak or act like teenagers, like yeah. like Brick. And, yeah, Brick <laughs> is great. Brick and, is great. And uh, Veronica uh, Veronica Mars. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I love Veronica Mars. Yeah, I I have a lot of the uh, the TV shows too. Veronica Mars is is up there. My so called life is probably my absolute favorite like mm-hmm. teen sh- TV show. Um, but actually my favorite teen movie was written by John Hughes, but directed by, I think it's Howard Dooch, uh, 1987, some kind of wonderful, mm-hmm. uh, where the punks save the day. <laughs> Super into that. Like, and it's way more about like working class heroes and, and artistic weirdos are great. And, and it's way more like, let's take down those Richies, you know? (laughs) And it's wonderful. And there's like a great scene where, uh, the punks burst into the like preppy party and are like, let's kick this up a notch. (laughs) You know what I really like? I like say anything. Oh my God. Say anything. Say anything. Say anything. That's a, that's a teen movie. Say anything is like John Cusack is like the most appealing teen, uh, hero or that's true yeah. uh so you're right man i slept now on we that have one. miles teller apparently he's supposed yeah. to be the heir to the throne uh whiplashes miles teller john yeah. kisak's a new new uh kind of we waited comparison. a long time for it yeah <laughs> i know i know but john kisak still making movies too maybe they'll do a movie together yeah he's doing a new movie um that's like a biopic the beach boys brian wilson biopic Oh, um, John Cusack plays the older Brian Wilson. Anyway, sweatpants on a man will never be more attractive than John oh my Cusack God. can say anything. That's you're so right. <laughs> Flash t-shirt and sweatpants. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> we should probably end on that note. I think Absolutely. Uh, it doesn't get better than that. Um, so uh, the breakfast club plays this Saturday at the Angler at 7 p.m. for a special event in celebration of its 30th anniversary. I think that the costume contest and things start a little bit earlier at 6 p.m. Uh, but for more information, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. Before we move on to our next film, let's check on the weather. It is currently 35 degrees in Iowa City. Tonight, there is a 90% chance of rain and a low of 33 degrees. And tomorrow, it will be a high of 51, and there will be a slight chance of rain. Supposed to be warm and sunny next week, though. Yeah, yeah. Supposed to get up to high 60s. Yeah. Boom. You are listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films, playing locally at film scene. During our third segment, we'll be discussing Xavier Dolan's Mommy. Mommy is a French-Canadian film about a power struggle between mother and son, where both are unstable and overly dependent. Reviews for the film often refer to it as an Oedipal comedy, but I found it to be much more complex than that description implies. It's heartrending and surreal and futuristic and yet retro. It feels young but not comedic forceful, but not too heavy. It was made by 26-year-old actor-turned-director Xavier Dolan and has been nominated for too many prizes to name this last year, winning the jury prize at Cannes. The story follows Diane and her teenage son Steve as they seek help from their neighbor Kyla, 
uh, to help tutor and watch over the volatile boy. The two women try to save Steve from himself, and he wants them to, but the force of his will is very strong. I feel like the film is ultimately about alternate family structures and boundaries and the quest for freedom within. The setting is a fictional Canada with strict laws about troubled youth. There are diagnoses spoken about to try and explain Steve's behavior, but everyone seems to be at a loss. It's an alternate time and space, as the film tells us immediately, but seems firmly 90s, especially cued by the soundtrack, but also with fashion. It's interesting to think about the 90s as this poignant time for new methods and certainly medications meant to address childhood learning or behavior disorders. So to begin our discussion, let's face this issue of Steve's behavior. Is this an exceptionally troubled teenage boy? Does he seem to be acting out as one might expect or is he just crossing all the boundaries? Uh, I would, I would say that Steve is an exceptionally troubled teenage boy. Um, I was once a teenage boy, uh, and <laughs> as, a, as our resident knowledgeable man on teenage boy behavior. Yes. I, I think that Steve's behavior is, uh, over and beyond, uh, several lines, uh, lines regarding, uh, prohibitions, uh, c- cultural and, uh, yeah, cultural prohibitions on, Incest. <laughs> uh, well, it, the the movie doesn't go doesn't fully cross that line, but he is a little bit overactive, both in terms of his violence and his sexuality, and it yeah. gets to, it gets placed on into a bunch of places that it should not be. And I and I think that yeah, it, it's an ex, that he is extraordinarily troubled. Um, how. That is, I think, one of the questions of the film is how to deal with that sort of uh, uh, problem, that sort of disability, um, uh, institutionally and and culturally. Um, I, I mean, most of the film is about sort of the how um, the mother die, how she how she deals with it, and how their neighbor comes in to to help them deal with it. But it's also posing these larger social questions about how what our choices are or what um, uh, the, the disabled person's choices are uh, for how, how their, their problem is uh, treated and, and dealt with. Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, I definitely found without giving too much away, I certainly don't want to spoil anything in the film, but uh, I found some of the sexual tension much less uh, disturbing in fact than Steve's predilection towards violence, yeah. Uh, yeah, which was most of the jarring moments for me, uh, where I felt that the relationship between him and Di became uh, more less than or more than just acting out, right? Uh, more of a problem than than a simple rebellion, uh, a type of situation where that could be potentially quelled. Um, so. That was was hard to watch, but I do find I did find the tension between mother and son to be incredibly provocative in a way that I found really compelling and interesting, um, and raises questions that movies often don't dare to. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I think that the big question for me is is certainly how far does the like the sexual tension go, but like. 
I guess that's, and that's a huge issue for like whether or not this is like ultimately like just an untenable situation um, Mm -hmm. for them to be in. But, um, but it is also just like, she's scared of him. Mm -hmm. There are these moments where she's terrified of him. And that I think is a really um, strange and interesting dynamic to have on screen as, as parts, but not ever, the the most overwhelming dynamic, right? Like they're they're they just like go in and out of this um, kind of scary power dynamic, um, but it doesn't overwhelm their relationship, uh, which I found to be really interesting. So and just in general, like the way that theorizes the way that all like mother and son relationships evolve, right? That there's a certain point where where physical jeopardy <laughs> like becomes an issue and and how do you get past that and not allow that to become the overwhelming dynamic of mm-hmm. of a family i don't know but i guess that the sexual tension stuff like i maybe i thought that that wasn't it was like him trying to get a rise out of both uh die and and kyla it was not so much like something that he was going to be following through on, you know, I don't know. There, there is one scene, I think it's toward the end of the film though. This film, as we kind of discussed earlier before the show, uh, this film is so long that I kept expecting it to end Yeah, (laughs) and and it didn't. So I think it's toward the end of the film where there's like a, he, he does sort of have this like lingering kiss. Yeah, that's uh, true. I, I, and I, I think you guys are right that, that violence is, is the bigger problem, but, there is, I, I think that she mentions when Kyla asks Di about his diagnosis, she like mentions really offhandedly his attachment disorder, yeah. um, which I, I think is is like part of his uh, psychosis that or whatever you would call it. Um, yeah. That he, he does have these sort of like feelings toward his mother that are rooted probably in, uh, you know, in the Freudian model. He hasn't yeah. learned how to like detach his erotic feelings uh, for his mother and, and uh, uh, attach them to a more appropriate uh, object choice. Right. Well, it seems very, uh, like you said, that boundaries are, are skewed for him in such a way that he doesn't necessarily feel the inappropriateness of expressing tender behavior, tender behaviors, according to cultural prohibitions that we uh, think about as kind of normalizing, our behavior. Uh, so his uh, tender moments with her tend to draw or to cross that line in ways that are uncomfortable for viewers, but seem relatively naturalistic in the context of the film and the relationship that they've established for the two characters, which I think is yeah. important in the success. Cause of the she film. crosses his boundaries too. Like mm-hmm. the way that she invades his space and, and right. like they're, they're so mutually, yeah. Boundary crossing. Like, it's just they're a family that doesn't know how Actually, to. one of the great things about the film is that you can actually, unlike a lot of movies where a mother is just a mother and a son is just a son and they both are characters in a movie, here you can actually kind of see where he gets some of his characteristics. Yeah. Like, they do, they do have a lot of things in common and you feel them as, like, 
even though actually the the actors don't look anything like each other. No. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. you feel you actually feel them like mother and son because they they do yeah, like you said they they both cross each other's boundaries. They both have similar sort of uh uh in your face attitudes toward each other and everybody else. Yeah. Um, and they they both perform their sexualities in such a way that it's like, oh yeah, like that's why this is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're both just like so performative when it comes to their sexuality. And, and so it seems like that's obviously headed for a clash, even if it's not a specifically like ancestral, you know, boundary crossing, but just like a, like, all right, shut it down, you know? <laughs> It does seem, uh, have you been watching Xavier Dolan's other films? Uh, No, I haven't seen anything else. I do think for him as a filmmaker, it's an interesting step because his career began with a film that uh, was literally about uh, killing your mother, lashing out out as a rebellious teen, uh, not understanding that your mother gives and sacrifices even if she's not that good at it. So um, in some ways, this seems like a much mature, a much more mature film for Xavier Dolan trying to move forward and thinking about uh, whether or not the mother is flawed, mm-hmm. that there is something that needs to be applauded and celebrated about even within that codependence, uh, that it's not healthy or um, even productive all the time for these characters. But at least uh, there's at least a real warmth and affection towards the uh, mother figure in this film. Yeah. I think that, and I mean, the actors are incredible, but I think that that's really interesting. I think her portrayal of this woman and the way that she fights her emotional reactions to things made the film um, much more interesting to me. Yeah. Well, and the, yeah, I think that you're totally right that the mother figure is, it's definitely very fractured in this film because we get, um, the two kind of primary mother figures when, when Kyla steps in, she has a way different dynamic with Steve and, and it like establishes different boundaries and you're sort of, and even though she has a lot of um, like personal issues that she's trying to deal with that that's for some reason she and Steve click because, um, because both of their boundaries are being kind mm-hmm. of established more um maybe uh, because she's willing to fight back against him in a particular way. And, and he's willing to kind of step back a little bit um, after she scares him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of boundaries, how about that aspect ratio? Yeah. Oh my God. We, we definitely need uh, to talk about that. Um, Maybe we should take a quick break before we get into that big topic um, because that's one of the big parts this film is the cinematography. Um, so yeah, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we'll continue our discussion of mommy. Support for KRUI is brought to you in part by the broken spoke. They offer new and used bicycles, cycling accessories, and also service a variety of bicycles. They can be found in Iowa city at 602 South Dubuque street. For more information, visit thebrokenspoke.com or call 319-338-8900. 
Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at film scene. We are currently discussing French-Canadian filmmaker Xavier Dolan's Mommy. So uh, we have to talk about the cinematography of the film, which is totally striking. Most of the film is shot in this uh, one-to-one square aspect ratio, but expands out to widescreen at certain crucial moments. So yeah, how did y'all feel about this particular viewing experience? Uh, it seems, it, it sometimes it seems a little cheesy. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it, it's I interesting. so we can fight you, about you it. Well, I, don't, I, I loved it. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I love it. It's wonderful. <laughs> I, I, it's so, yeah, they do, they do some interesting things. It's, it's not, it's not often that you see a film actually play with its aspect ratio like that. Um, we saw it, uh, if you've seen Grand Budapest Hotel, Grand Budapest Hotel does this thing where it's, it's sort of a nested story. So it's somebody telling a story about the seventies, telling a story about the thirties and each one is filmed in a different aspect ratio appropriate to that time period. Um, and to me, I, I liked Grand Budapest Hotel, but that seemed, the problem with that is that it, it seemed a little bit. Uh, superficial in a way. I actually thought it was a pretty superficial movie overall. Whereas, whereas this this movie is actually trying to. It, I think that the stuff that it does with aspect ratio does have a lot to do with the story. You know, it's uh, you get the sense that Die and Steve live in this very like isolated world where it's just the two of them, and they have their own way of communicating. And because of his illness, um, they are sort of like they're they're stuck together and they're stuck isolated from, from the outside world. And then it, it's, it's after sometime after Kyla comes in that, that they start doing interesting things with, with the aspect ratio in the movie. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I like, I liked that, you know, they, uh, they, they you like pl- the changes, but not the regular use of the, no, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm sorry that I called it cheesy. I, 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 I this is Bijou Banter, think, Pat. I could see how you would think that uh, simply because even in your description of it, it is very on the nose, Yeah, I suppose. So, I mean, I think when something symbolic functions in such straightforward fashion that I could see why you would want to call it cheesy. I just felt like it worked for me in this particular film. but uh, And I felt pretty euphoric about the, yeah. the pushing out of the screen. I thought it emotionally worked for me more so than most moments in the film. Oh my God. Yeah. I thought that the first moment that they, that they choose to do Mm. it. Um, but it, that ties in also with the, the other, um, kind of formal characteristics of the film, namely the score and the soundtrack, um, which is another huge topic that we should get into. Oh my goodness gracious. Um, the music in the film was so, so evocative for me. Uh, plays a huge role in creating character and mood here. I mean, I know that I'm definitely a 90s weirdo, um, but the particularly famous songs, Oasis Wonderwall, Counting Crows Colorblind, etc., seems so pointed and referential that I like couldn't help but ascribe even greater meaning to than usual to a soundtrack, just like in general. I, I don't necessarily find it to be the most important thing of most movies, but... Um, did y'all have a particular response to the soundtrack, especially in relationship to the the cinematography and the aspect ratio? Uh, so 
I I liked the the soundtrack. I I felt <laughs> I felt like it was a mixtape that I It is a little on the nose. That I too. that I would have made. <laughs> it's a little bit on the nose. Like sometimes the lyrics are a little bit too close to, yeah. to what's happening. <laughs> um and and it's also it just it just I it it just felt like a mix CD from from 10 years ago. Like uh it's got it's got what's her face on it? Who was who was the sample for that Eminem song? Yeah, Dido. Dido, Dido. There's a Dido song on here. There's there's Wonderwall. There's Sarah McLaughlin. There's Sarah McLaughlin. Well, she's Canadian. It right? is That's a true. crowd pleaser. Yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> it's a, it's a great it's a great soundtrack. Um, I think my mom had the same one. Yeah, Incident, just incidentally. Right. <laughs> So I loved it. <laughs> now that's what we call music 14 or whatever yeah. it was. <laughs> the, uh, the only thing that was missing from my mom's uh, playlist was uh, Alanis Morissette. I think. Oh, yeah. But right. I, I really, it worked w- really well for me. Uh, although I didn't need the social sci-fi setup uh, in oh, this yeah. film. It kind of confused me, in fact, um, because it does seem to be rooting it in the current day. And then its choices are so thoroughly 90s that it took me a minute to get oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I understand why he wanted to do that. For listeners, uh, the film from the very beginning is rooted in a new law that allows uh, mothers or families to commit uh, m- mentally uh, ill, Ill uh, individuals without uh, going through the traditional legal channels. And I understand why he wanted to do that uh, for the plot. But yeah. uh, but then it kind of made the the '90s things a bit jarring for me at first. But I loved the soundtrack, and I loved the moment where Steve is uh, kind of out and about, and it's clear that he's listening to uh, hard rap. Yeah, on his on his headphones. <laughs> There's no question about that. But the actual soundtrack choice uh, is the Counting Crows "Colorblind" moment, and yeah. uh, I think that song is so iconic for uh, '90s pop culture. Yeah, cruel intentions. Yeah, population <laughs> cruel too. intentions and my bedroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Sobbing myself to sleep listening to just Counting like, Crows. They kind of cheated by using that for getting me on board. I was just like, "Into it, play the whole song, please." <laughs> I will, I will listen and feel stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's spinning a grocery cart now. It's very poignant. <laughs> Everything he does is poignant. When colorblind. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I totally love that moment too because he is so obviously like he's super into like hip hop culture, uh, the way he dresses and the way he like talks and whatever. Uh, but and so he's clearly he's like on his longboard, mm-hmm. and he's clearly listening to to like rap or hip hop, and and he's like his gestures, and he's singing along, so you know that he's listening to that. And then this <laughs> song swells, and you're just and that's what makes it sort of euphoric. Yeah, these moments where it's it's intended to be so on the nose and so like what is happening, you know? <laughs> and it it's works very really surreal. Differently than films that f- make you feel manipulated in that way mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, I'm feeling, because I mean, it certainly does. I mean, to, but I think it's aware of that in a way that didn't make me feel emotionally uh, used. Yeah. Where I was like, oh, this song choice wants me to feel this way. Yeah. But it does that so self-consciously uh, that I, I actually enjoyed it. It does have um, a great version of this sort of, um, du jour, uh, everybody, 
uh, sings together, uh, goofily sings together a sort of campy song and thus establishes <laughs> their love for one another. Yeah. That's, that's like, you, ju- you just find this in a lot of movies, I think, these days. But it, it was really fascinating to me because they do it, uh, the three of them sing a song uh, that, that's a, a Celine Dion song that probably nobody yeah. in this town will recognize because it's it's in French and it's it's like a, a hit from her pre-America days or, or something, <laughs> I I kind of assume. I don't know. Uh, but it's something that everybody in, in Quebec knows. And watching this, I, I just was thinking, like, Quebec is really a different place than here. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody has a smartphone in this movie. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Catherine, you said that that everything in the movie is is. He does take a selfie from, with his flip phone. Yeah, he takes yeah. a selfie with his flip phone. Yeah, uh, it is pretty nineties. Yeah. It's it's weird. It's a weirdly nineties. Well, it seems to be like uh, rooted. I think everything in the film suggests that the place is actually nine the nineties. Yeah, I don't think there's anything that actually would suggest otherwise. Those glittery jeans. Yeah, for sure. her outfit choices. <laughs> that actress does an amazing job at like selling a character that could be uh, taken not hard to take seriously. Yeah, but she is. Yeah. I mean, such an incredible, so incredible in the role that I think that never becomes an issue. She so fiercely embodies this mm-hmm. woman that like struts around town in these outfits and just like wears it. Yeah, like, yeah. Okay, I guess you can get away with that butterfly t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you can see why her neighbor, Kylo, would be so, like, you know, attracted to this dynamic that that she has where she's just, like, fun and kind of body and kind of irreverent, you know? Like, she's, I mean, she's just this, like, uber, uber woman, you know? Uh She's a mom, but she's not, she hasn't like given into an identity of like, I'm a conservative mom at all. So she's, you can see why like the contradiction between the the kind of family life that Kylo is leading in her house and the family life that, Mm -hmm. um, that Di is, is kind of in charge of (laughs) in her side. Like you can see why they would be kind of attracted to each other and why their friendship uh, kind of blossoms the way it does. I actually, some of the, my favorite scenes were the ones where they're just like laughing with each other and joking, um, which you don't really, I mean, you're not even really sure what they're talking about. It's like that deep of a moment where you're like, what? But they're just laughing and it's, <laughs> and it's really the, the mood and the dynamic is really nice to, to tap into. Um, so, do you guys have any other thoughts on Mommy before we conclude? I did feel it is a film worth seeing. So if any of what we said piqued your interest, I think you should check it out before it leaves film scene. It is um, in a film of incredible performances and raises provocative questions that I think are fun to talk about, even though it is long. So go yeah. into it knowing that uh, you're going to spend two and a half hours. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I probably would have minded less its length if it if I hadn't seen it at, at night. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I actually, despite what I said about its length, it is it is a very good and very well filmed movie. I think it's interesting. It seems like the the aspect ratio that most of the movie is in 
it would fit on a vertically held uh, smartphone pretty yeah. well. Mm-hmm. So I you watch it on your smartphone. I wonder if there's some <laughs> elaborate forced way of reading this as media allegory. It's like the difference between a s- smartphone world and a and a movie world. I think there are lots of things in this film that yeah. aren't major plot points that you could really get into insane conversations about. So I appreciate that um, yeah. as like kind of a closing note about the film because it just does it does a lot. I mean, I guess because it's got two and a half hours to do it. Yeah. Well, and I think that one could say a lot about the karaoke that's going on right. yes. in this film and the poignant choices this young man is making with his karaoke. Andrea Bocelli. Yeah. Also, he is like a, like had Macaulay Culkin grown up to be like, Oh my God. A hundred percent. There's a home alone uh, reference. Charged there is with, home yeah, with sexual energy. That yeah. is what this actor is like. Yeah. It's, um, um, I mean, how can you dial up Macaulay Culkin's, sexuality i don't know <laughs> no it's like if you took macaulay culkin and party monster and we're like how can we make this uh, more sexually charged <laughs> that's what we want you to do and he was like done and he does it <laughs> yeah i really want to know like and he's 15 wh- in the film yeah oh my god i do not believe that i i mean that's one of the things that i was like he's a gigantic 15 year old um yeah he knows a lot about the world yeah yeah seen some stuff but I guess he was in like juvie for quite a while before she, before the start of the film. So we're meant to understand him that way. Yeah, yeah, that he's kind of in and out of the the clink. <laughs> so we're, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> serious social issues <laughs> going on. Um, all right, so great. Why don't we end on that note? Um, <laughs> again, mommy continues playing at film scene this evening, uh, and for two showings tomorrow. Uh, for more information on the film, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. Also, don't forget that the Mission Creek Festival begins on March 31st. That's next Tuesday. If you love books and music and movies, that's a great time to indulge. Check out missionfreak.com for more details. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, Please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and longstanding role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in, down, in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Pat, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And Caitlin, it's been a pleasure to have you on Bijou Banter. Thanks. I can't wait to come back whether you want me to or not. (laughs) You're coming back next week. Uh, I'm Catherine, and I look forward to more banter next week.